on ABC New South Wales. This is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. And a very good afternoon. Lovely to be with you, filling in for Michael Condon for the next fortnight. Still lots to share with you on today's program. We take a look at one of the biggest finds of its kind in Australian history, handed to an unlicensed Victorian labour hire company. We're also going to take a tour of a Riverina Abattoir that is reopening this week. The decision was made to actually demolish the majority of the, of the plant and to streamline the operation to modern standards and efficiencies. And before one o'clock, a Hunter Valley garlic growers hopes that Australia will one day reduce our imports of that kitchen staple. That's ahead of us here on the New South Wales Country Hour. We always love to hear from you, of course. You can text the program at any time, 0467 922 684, or if you're streaming us on the ABC Listen app today, just hit contact the program. Always love to get your thoughts on the range of stories we'll bring you between now and one o'clock. But the Aussie ag industry set a pretty big target of making agriculture accessible to all by 2030. What do you reckon? Are we well on our way or do we have big challenges to ensuring people living with disabilities are supported not only within the workforce but also as consumers of ag services? Let me know what you think, 0467 984. Now in a bid to create a bit of a baseline after hearing for some time anecdotally just how the industry's going, the team at Ability Agriculture Foundation has undertaken a survey and have just released the data. Ability Ag's founder Josie Clark is here to run us through the findings. Good afternoon Josie. Good afternoon, Amelia. How are you? Very well. Thanks for joining us on this because there's not much data in this space at all. So you've sort of, you're creating a baseline. Yeah, absolutely. Where, um, you know, Ability Agriculture formed the, a community group, um, you know, from, from lived experience. Um, and so I guess anecdotally, you know, we've known, like, you know, from my dad's experience, we know that, you know, he's paid to do modifications to his gator to, to stay on farm, whereas had to travel over 500 kilometres to, to Sydney to, to get to the one um, business that can, can modify his car for him. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of unknown data just around, you know, what is agricultural accessibility um, for people with disability? What is our disability confidence of, of agricultural services? And, and what, you know, how are we tracking for disability inclusion? Because we really need to, you know, understand the statistics to say, okay, this is where we can improve or this is where we're doing really great. So, yeah, I think some of these statistics, um, you know, definitely won't be surprising and I think they'll definitely be conversation starters. But for us, it's it's how do we work together, you know, to, to move forward and, and improve them. And I suppose you, you touched on there, like, what does accessibility look like? It is different for everyone, of course. But uh, what were you hearing from the respondents? Did they work in inclusive workplaces or was it very much, it's good, but I think, you know, the overall feedback is that it, it's very much unknown. And, and like you said, it, it's dependent. It's dependent on, you know, what, what adaptations are needed. And, and for me, you know, agricultural accessibility, it's not just from, you know, physical adaptations, um, but it's also from, you know, support of, of your co-workers or support of an agricultural service. So, you know, when you when you see that only 39% of, of people who work in the agricultural enterprise you know, think that their their business has clear communication and policy or or infrastructure to include 
and have access for people with disability as employees or even customers and clients, then you have to ask, you know, if, if that's what someone who works at a rural store in Gundalindi feels not supported or is not sure how to navigate or help a customer with a disability, you know, that's, that's the key thing is accessing services for you to be able to run your enterprise or, or work in the agricultural industry. So um, that, there's a lot of different things that, that we need to really look at and say, how do we build the confidence or infrastructure or resources um, for for businesses in rural areas um, to build that that inclusion and accessibility. Mm, that's a great point because when we think of inclusivity in the workplace, it's you know it, Lane, like you touched on with your dad's situation, is the gator modified so that people can use it? But are you really thinking about the consumers as well? And it was interesting to see in your report, Josie, that. There was a lot of people, when you put a question to them about their workplace's policies around this, they actually weren't sure if they had one or, or, or their workplace didn't have one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's if you're not, not sure of that support within within your own business and and having that support is that there's a massive challenge there to, okay, okay, I've got a customer or someone who's maybe trying to find work with us. I'm not quite sure how to navigate this. And that can be the first interaction for someone with a disability to be approached by someone who might say, sorry, we can't help you, but it's because we, they themselves don't know how to help or support them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's a lot of work that we can do for, you know, doing a, if it, even if it's a 30-minute chat, you know, with us talking about disability inclusion or understanding the experience of people, you know, with disability in agriculture. I think that's a, a first step and it's a positive step just to have that conversation and awareness of, of disability in, in agriculture. Mm. You're hearing this afternoon from Josie Clark. She's the founder of Ability Agriculture at 11 past 12 on the New South Wales Country Hour. Let's take a look at some of those stats. I love a good number crunch, Josie. Um, what did you find in terms of the transparency of, of people actually getting into the sector? Because we always speak about we need more people in the ag sector, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 61% of people um, didn't believe that there were transparent pathways into careers in agriculture for people with disability. Um, and that was from you know, tertiary education, university, through to TAFE, work experience, and even traineeship courses. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot of different things that we need to increase the transparency around pathways into agriculture, especially for young people, um, that they feel included and that, that there are um, various different opportunities to even get a taste for what working in agriculture feels like. Um, the recent, you know, snapshot, snapshot into the agriculture's workforce found that majority of people with disability in agriculture were in that, later age bracket, so over 65 years. And so for me, it's what about the young people with disability and those gaps there of, of creating transparent pathways and, and showing that, hey, agriculture could be a career for you as well. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that space. And I think as well, you know, looking at our ageing workforce and, you know, that the majority of people with disability are that older age group. When we go back and look at, you know, 80% of people who had made adaptations and support in their workplace were self-funded. And so when you look at the average age of a farmer and, and needs for support and to, you know, make their business accessible, when you look at funding schemes like NDIS, funding stops at the age of 65. So some of those statistics can make a lot of sense and connect a lot of, a lot of different dots to the avenues and pathways to resources and funding 
that just don't exist for rural and regional businesses or for people, individuals with disability at the moment in agriculture. Mm. Well, you've laid it all out. I'm sure this has taken some time, Josie, but you have put together now this starting point for businesses, for employers, uh, for policymakers and government officials as well. What do you hope sort of comes from this now that people can can see uh, what the workforce is looking like? I think the, the, the positive thing to take out of these statistics is that you know, people do want to change and do want to learn how to how do they make their business more inclusive and accessible. And I think, you know, the big one for me was that over 80% of people would be more than happy in, to make adaptations or modifications or, or do disability training in the agricultural workplace if there was grants and subsidies available. And I think that's the thing is is creating that transparency to what is available right now and what translates to an agricultural enterprise. Because I think there's a lot of great areas there and also appreciating that in agriculture is that maybe you don't have time to, to look into a grant and how can we help you do that? Or how can we help you understand what are the existing funding pathways for you to be able to do that? Because I think that's a really important step forward. Josie, really appreciate you um, bringing us up to speed here this afternoon. Thanks for joining the Country Hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. Josie Clark is the founder of Ability Agriculture, um, inspired by her dad, who, like you were hearing there, had to make some adaptations himself to get back on the farm after uh, an accident. You can read more, jump on their socials, and you can read that full uh, full report. It's Ability Agriculture. And you're listening to the Country Hour, where it's quarter past 12. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, to some other news now, and an unlicensed labour hire company has been fined more than $600,000 after a successful prosecution by the Victorian Labour Hire Authority. The Supreme Court found AL Star Express knowingly and repeatedly breached the Labour Hire Licensing Act by supplying workers to horticulture businesses around Melbourne without holding a labour hire licence. It also found those workers were underpaid and mistreated. Labour Hire Authority Commissioner Steve Dargavel says the la- it's the largest fine of its kind in Australia's history and dodgy labour hire companies will continue to be caught out. Labour hire workers picking fruit and vegetables amongst Victoria's most vulnerable workers. Um, it's really critical that companies employing them are appropriately vetted and licensed. And look, dodgy labour hire providers who pay workers as little as $17 an hour just have no place in our industry and they will be held to account. The Supreme Court has imposed a penalty of $617,000 on labour hire provider AL Star Express um, for its repeated contraventions in supplying vulnerable workers to an egg farm, nursery, berry, uh, picking berries and vegetables. And these workers, uh, we say, were not um, treated properly. The dodgy labour hire provider was unlicensed and we took that uh, provider to court to hold them to account and the court imposed Australia's largest ever penalty in labour hire licensing law of $617,000. What was the nature of the mistreatment of the workers? The workers uh, were not paid properly. They were paid well below the award. Look, there are plenty of legitimate businesses out there that would love to have um, these brilliant workers and treat them properly, but unfortunately this labour hire business saw fit to supply these workers and not pay them properly and supply them into uh, host business undertakings, as we say, an egg farm and nursery, uh, berry picking and vegetable picking. We know that workers working in these industries are particularly vulnerable, uh, as you mentioned, often backpackers or on here on work visas, perhaps limited English. Was that the case with these workers? 
Uh, we believe these workers were precisely um, vulnerable by virtue of language and uh, visa. Um, and this unscrupulous labour hire provider was uh, doing the wrong thing. Uh, and look, it's just a reminder to hosts to only use licensed labour hire providers. It's important that uh, labour hire providers are vetted and licensed so that we don't see this kind of exploitation. And there are significant repercussions for those businesses who try to circumvent the law. Is that the case with these breaches? The farms who used this labour hire, this unlicensed labour hire company, did they know it was unlicensed? There have certainly been penalties uh, awarded and significant penalties um, underway against hosts. Uh, in this case, we elected to prosecute the labour hire provider and we're yet to make a decision in relation to the host businesses. That fine, as you mentioned, the highest in Australian history, almost $620,000. Was, was that only against the company or against the company and uh, individuals? Uh, this was a uh, penalty awarded against the business, AL Star Express, and um, it's certainly been the case that other matters that the authority has taken, uh, we've pursued ind individual directors as well as the company. In this case, it's a penalty awarded against the company. And I understand that the Supreme Court it specifically stated that the penalty needed to be as high as it was so that it wasn't simply just, uh, I think the quote was, the, the price of doing business. Absolutely. Um, and when the, uh, when the scheme was brought into being, it was brought into being for the express purpose of ensuring that dodgy labour hire providers don't pay small penalties and get away with it as a price of doing business. It's, um, this is a significant penalty and um, the authority is uh, very keen to ensure that uh, we run dodgy labour hire providers out of the industry and uh, legitimate providers are supported. Given what you've seen in your time in the role, how would you compare this to other contraventions of the, the Labor Hire Licensing Act and how would you characterise the, the company's conduct? Well, the company's conduct is serious where it is uh, operating without a licence. It's not treating workers properly and it's doing so in multiple sites. That kind of behaviour uh, will be held to account and significant penalties uh, will apply to that kind of behaviour. There's certainly other conduct that's going on in the labour hire industry that the labour hire authority is keen to bring to book and we'll have further things to say about other matters that will be taken forward um, in due course. Um, look, it's really easy to avoid this kind of problem uh, for hosts and labour hire providers if you just use a legitimate la licensed labour hire provider and the workforce is treated properly. But where, where a business is going to exploit vulnerable workers and really do the wrong thing, they, they need to be aware that they'll be held to account and there are very significant penalties for failing to do the right thing. How unconscionable is it when you've got people who've come from, from all over the world, they're, they're here to work, to make money, in some cases to, to send money back home to their families who need it, and yet they're, they're being underpaid and, and mistreated? It is unconscionable to pay workers, vulnerable workers, $17 an hour who are working very hard. This is not easy work working in um, uh, picking fruit and vegetables. It's hard work. It should be rewarded. It should be rewarded at least with the legal minimum and certainly only paying people $17 an hour is, is just outrageous and exploiting people by their vulnerability. Um, it's just not behaviour that belongs in this industry and, and should be stamped out. 
That was Labor Higher Authority Commissioner Steve Dargavel speaking there with Angus Verley. You're tuned to the New South Wales Country Hour, 21 past 12, and Amelia Bernasconi filling in today and for the next fortnight for Michael Condon. Let's head down to the Riverina now, where the first stage of a $300 million refurbishment of the Australian Meat Group's abattoir will come to life this week. When fully operational, AMG plans to process 1,000 head of cattle and up to 7,500 lambs a day at the Cootamundra site, as Emily Doak reports. AMG bought the mothballed Cootamundra abattoir in 2019 and Managing Director Gilbert Cabral says its redevelopment has allowed for modern technology to be incorporated throughout. The decision was made to actually demolish the majority of the, of the plant and to streamline the operation to modern standards and efficiencies to the level of productivity that we were looking for. When fully operational in 2025, it's anticipated about a 1,000 people will be employed on site. And with workforce shortages in the meat processing sector, Mr Cabral says the plant's been designed to minimise the need for highly skilled workers, using cutting-edge technology to simplify processes. COVID situation with lack of workers and skilled workers in the area and all that, so that's been a lot of time designing engineering skills out of the process and makes it a lot easier for our key trainers to train a bigger group of, of, of workers. Going forward, when it, we still need a lot of people. It's not, we're not going to be reducing the amount of people, in, in, but um, we'll be able to produce more product per kilo per person. Can you give me some examples of how that's been achieved? <clears throat> automation throughout the plant, automation in the coal storage area, automation to the carcass chillers by using RFIDs to identify the carcass so we can upgrade the data at any point in time so we can locate the carcass and we can eventually run efficient boning runs to suit the customer at the time. Even down into the stockyards, how have you engineered those in terms of worker safety and the skills that workers would need to have in when they start working in the business? The yards are designed for animal welfare to keep them as calm and as relaxed as we can and also keeping the workers in those areas away from the animals. So we've got walkways uh, outside the, uh, the pens itself. So that's been a very conscious decision to make sure for our issues that we don't mixed people, pedestrian traffic with, with cattle traffic. So that's been done right through the plant. And in terms of the technology you've been able to introduce here and implement, is it cutting edge far above what we see in a lot of processing plants in Australia? Certain plants in Australia will have some certain components. We're able to put everything together on one side. So that's probably what makes it a, little, a lot more exciting exciting uh, developments that we can actually incorporate all that in one hit. The plant will process for both export and domestic markets. AMG already operates a processing facility at Dandenong in Victoria and Mr Cabral says the investment in Cootamundra will allow the business to increase its reach further north. He says it all begins with commissioning of the beef processing line this week. We're already sorting stock in, into southern New South Wales for our Dandenong plant but now we're going to be able to reduce the freight component into, into Kudamandra. We'll be able to go further north and we'll be looking at also uh, increasing our grain-fed cattle processing, percentage of grain-fed cattle to, to be processed here. And uh, we will put out grids like everyone else does and we'll be market or we'll be better than market to get us, to get us established in the area. So you've made this investment and completed these funds at a time when we saw livestock prices at at record levels. What gave you the confidence to do that? Forecasting is too difficult in the livestock industry. We had 
three years of continuous rain, so eventually the rain will have to stop and then we'll go into a cycle where things just start to dry out a bit. But that's not, that's not why we do it. It's because we love doing it. We love setting up plants. We love processing, setting up teams and procurement and process and sales. So we're always back to ourselves to do that regardless. We had a bit of a walk around through this morning and at the moment there's still workers who are putting the final touches on things. How do you feel walking through today after what you've been through in terms of the delays with supply chains and COVID, to see it so close to being operational. Yeah, it was pretty exciting today. It's all looking pretty, pretty new, pretty shiny, pretty clean. Uh, all, all coming together. We start doing some trials next week, so it's all pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, we've still got some people working and ongoing development on site. We're still going to be building and continue to build on site for the next probably 12 to 18 months. That's Gilbert Cabral, the Managing Director of Australian Meat Group, ending that tour through their new processing facility in the Riverina with Emily Doke there. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 26 past 12, and apparently the late Queen Elizabeth banned them from her kitchen, but I reckon garlic has to be one of the staples to start almost any recipe. This year, around 100 million bulbs are expected to be harvested across Australia, but one organic grower in the Upper Hunter wants to see a shift away from the chemical use. She'd also love to see Australia grow more and import less garlic. Patrice Newell AM has just finished curing this year's crop at her property at Gundy, focusing on one variety up there. They call it glamour. It's a purple hardneck variety. So it's, it went out of favour. And when Australia had a garlic industry before China became the world's supplier of garlic, um, most garlic grown in Australia was a variety called Australia, Australian uh, white. Mm-hmm. And that was used for the process industry. This garlic, these hardneck, these purple hardneck varieties, they are really for the kitchen and the shelf life, and the beauty of them, the ease of getting the skin off them and the size of the clove is what is the feature of the variety we grow. And were you happy with, you know, the size and quality of them as they came out? Do they need much water through the year? Because we, yeah, until yeah. this point, we haven't no. got much. <laughs> no, the irony is we, it was irrigated the whole way through. Some years mm-hmm. we've hardly needed to irrigate at all. And when we don't want the rain, uh, we've had it right at the end and then during this curing. I know we're always, there's always something to be a little bit disappointed with. But no, generally, no, happy, I'm happy. Um, it's always a great thing to get a crop out of the ground. I think that, that feels, that's an achievement in itself. Mm. So what sort of um, tonnages are you working to when you go, you've got to then cure it? Take us through that process. So we aimed for a four-tonne crop. And out of that crop, we get our seed stock for next year. So it's not mm-hmm. like saleable product. That's our rule of thumb. It doesn't take much um, acreage. It's grown in front of the house here near the Pages River. And you can do seven tonne a hectare. Wow. So, so you don't need a lot of land. It's just the detailing, really, that um, gives you the success. Garlic doesn't like weeds, and that's mm-hmm. why most garlic grown in Australia is grown with a lot of chemical to keep it weed-free. But for organic um, farmers, it's a lot of weeding and or mulching. Some of it's done mechanically, but a lot of it's done by hand. 
Yeah, gosh, so much love goes into your organic products there, Patrice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was curious about the curing process. I had no idea. I feel terrible that, yeah, I, I thought it was harvested and then it's on the shelf. So what do you actually do during that process and how's the rain impacted that? Okay, well, we've learnt over the years the, the most thing for everybody, even if you're harvesting it out of your own garden. Um, people said, oh, they used to hang it on the clothesline mm-hmm. and then it would get rained on and then it would get a bit black-looking and mouldy-looking. No, in a dry shed and ventilation is the key. So I learnt early on to invest in fans because keeping the air well ventilated if there's a lot of humidity around is the key to success. Okay. Apparently this year 100 million bulbs will be brought in across Australia. You touched on how China has just steamrolled forward. 100 million bulbs for Australia, are we going up, are we going backwards, or is it sort of hard to tell? I don't know. They're, they're, <laughs> it's incredible. There's definitely an increase usage of garlic in you've only got to look at all the recipes now you know most so many now start off with garlic and onion Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'd say it's there has been a huge increase uh, in the importation of of garlic in Australia ever since we've started and we thought the Australian industry that we would cut that back and that hasn't happened and in the 15 years that I've been growing garlic I, I mean, most people that were growing similar size crops to me aren't growing it anymore because, you know, you only need to have a few fails and you get a bit sick of it. Mm. So it it's, it isn't the same group of people that are growing. There's a couple of really big producers who are really nailing it in their technique. But again, they're using chemicals. So I don't know because I don't support using chemicals in the fresh food sector, uh, I find it pretty challenging to get excited to that we don't want to go. We don't want to go back to just having four or five big growers. You want to be able to have all the different varieties, of which there are hundreds. And already, I used to grow a lot of different varieties. A lot of people didn't want. They were not that interested in all the varietal things. That was something, you know, the okay. grower is interested in. Yeah. The consume, what does the consumer want? What does the person in the kitchen want? They like a juicy bulb. They like to be able to get the skin off it pretty quick, easily. They like it to last. They buy garlic in December. They'd like to still see it as nice and fresh uh, in March. They're the basics, and you lose a lot of those good basics when we have an imported uh, industry. Patrice Newell AM, she's an organic garlic grower from Gundy in the Upper Hunter. You might have some thoughts on, yeah, our reliance on imported garlic or maybe just a good recipe you're willing to flick through. You can always text us here at the Country Hour, 0467 It is 28 minutes to one between now and one o'clock. 250 mil of rain, floods and oyster lease on the south coast. How are they going to recover ahead of the Christmas rush? We've probably got at least two weeks' work ahead of us just to clean up the immediate damage before we even start looking at stock reconciliations and um, calculating our losses. And before one, we'll also meet someone with one of the most common neurodegenerative diseases and see how they manage it all living in rural Australia. But right now, let's get the latest from the newsroom. Bindi Bryce is here. Good afternoon. Hey, Amelia. 
First up, the Greens want a Senate inquiry into Coles and Woolies. There are calls for greater transparency of pricing practices in supermarkets with suggestions the duopoly isn't giving us heaps of choices for cheaper groceries. The Greens say an inquiry might lead to change that could bring down soaring food prices during record high inflation. There's plenty of speculation on whether the Reserve Bank will lift interest rates again tomorrow when it meets for the last time this year. Economists say inflation has been a bit weaker than expected and it's looking unlikely the Reserve Bank will go for another hike, but that could change early next year. The official cash rate is sitting at a 12-year high of 4.35%. Around the regions, the federal member for Cowper says the state of telecommunications in remote areas is dire. Pat Conaghan's pushing for extra funding to boost regional telecommunications on the mid-north coast. This comes after the Nimboida bushfire in October damaged an Optus tower, leaving residents without phone and internet coverage for almost five days. In the Central West, police officers will ramp up their presence at multiple level crossings to try and reduce near-miss crashes. Highway Patrol will monitor crossings on rural roads for two weeks. Transport for New South Wales says there's been issues with dangerous driving at level crossings in the region. A clinical researcher says more investigation needs to be done into a possible higher prevalence of Parkinson's disease in rural and regional areas. Researchers at Charleston Uni say evidence suggests there are more cases of the neurogenerative disorder in the bush than in cities. They're looking to find out why there's a disparity there. And briefly in sport, there's been a major development in the long-running pay dispute between the Netball Players Union and the sports governing body. The ABC understands they've reached an in-principle deal after more than two months without pay for the players. That's what's making news, Millie. Pindy Bryce, thank you very much. Why get your news from the ABC News app? Well, it's part of my daily routine. I check it on my phone when I stop for a break. I can focus on local, national or world news. It's my choice. I get an alert when something new comes in. Love the live blogs. Follow them all day. There's more than just headline stories, you know. It's news that makes a difference. Why do I get my news from the ABC News app? I trust it. I trust ABC News Online. And it's free. It's free. For free news you can trust, download the ABC News app. Don't forget to get that ABC Listen app while you're in your app store. It is 25 minutes to one. Amelia Bernasconi filling in on the New South Wales Country Hour today and this week. It is time to head off to the Bureau, though. Juwan Park is there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Amelia. I'm bracing for this hot weather, but let's look at today first. Are things sort of pretty average for a, what are we, early summer day? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it will be a, a, bit, a bit of a changes from uh, the stormy weather we have seen in the last couple, couple of weeks and because we are actually heading into the drier territory. So we may still see some showers along the coast and the eastern ranges this afternoon, uh, but dry weather conditions prevailing west of the divide. And tomorrow we expect dry weather conditions across the states, but from today and tomorrow we expect increasing heat. Uh, that will be the main concern over the coming days, as we, uh, we may see the temperatures rising up to high 30s to low 40s in many parts in the north and the west. And with that, we expect low-intensity heat waves 
developing in the West and spreading across the, much of the state while increasing to severe intensity heat wave from the midweek onward. So uh, maybe uh, with this, we may see the temperatures uh, well reaching well above December averages. And, uh, may, uh, but on the other hand, we may see a brief temperature relief along the south, uh, south coast on Wednesday with uh, coastal southerly changes. But this temperature relief will be only brief because the heat will be returning to much of the states and uh, through, the week, uh, through the week at least uh, until the end part of the week. And also, uh, with the increasing heat and uh, surface level moisture from the midweek onward, we may see a return to isolated showers or storms over broad areas uh, much uh, for the second half of the week. But and do not expect much rainfall out of this because it will be hit and miss and high based and on, only a few millimeters, if any. Right. Oh, gosh. It's all it's all hitting a summer re- well and truly this week, Juan. You mentioned that on the south coast they might start to see a reprieve from later this week, a bit earlier than the north of the state. Um, does that mean they'll see the heatwave conditions move in earlier as well? Uh, not really, because uh, this, this suddenly change will be only brief. So if there's any uh, relief at all, it will be only Wednesday. I'm just uh, mentioning this uh, temporary uh, feature. And then maybe towards the weekend, uh, there may be a bit more stronger um, trough that might be pushing. But at this moment, uh, there is still a big uncertainty about the next uh, weekend system. Um, but um, this weekend system, uh, by look of it, uh, may bring another temperature relief, or maybe only a along the coast on Saturday and maybe Sunday, but uh, um, later part of Saturday, but ahead of it, there might, might be some temperature spike as well. So that means over much of the state, we expect heat wave conditions maybe in severe intensity through the at least the second half of the week, much of the state. Right. Are there any towns in particular that need to get ready for this, Juan, that are going to see into the you know low, maybe even mid-40s? Uh, well, um, we, uh, with the current weather uh, event, we expected the temperatures to reach uh, maybe low 40s, uh, uh, probably not mid 40s uh, by look of it. Uh, so for, um, to give you some idea, maybe from uh, for double, we may see temperatures rising up to 40 degrees from Wednesday onward. And also even Western Sydney may see temperatures um, in, uh, rising to maybe about 40 or 42 degrees at places like Penis by Saturday. And maybe... Um, um, and not, not just the normal places uh, across the northern inland, but also, you know, places like uh, Waga, for, for example, may see high 30s developing uh, from, say, uh, Thursday onward. Alrighty. Well, we'll um, get cool, get the fans cranking, and we'll um, catch up with you again tomorrow, Juan. Thanks for today. My pleasure. Thank you. Juan Park from the Bureau of Meteorology there. Yep, it's it's here, isn't it? Summer's well and truly here. I'd love to hear from you if you've got some um, sort of management plans in place because well, I don't think we've seen anywhere north of 40 degrees so far this year. So if you want to share any tips and tricks, whether it's for yourself or your stock, you can always text us here 0467 On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, oyster farmers along the New South Wales south coast are fearing the worst for their Christmas sales after heavy rain and flooding closed leases just weeks out from that busy festive harvest. The torrential rain has closed most estuaries on the far south coast, which accounts for almost 60% of the state's total oyster production. Pambula oyster farmer Roy Glessing says he can't harvest his oysters until enough salt water returns to his lease to equalise those salinity levels. That was after a massive two-day downpour. The bulk of the rain happened over two days and totaled around about the 250 mil 
for the uh, Lockheel Pangula catchment. Yeah, the river got up to probably, Pangula River got up to just under five metres, which was uh, just under the height that we had in the major um, March 2021 flood. And what has that done for your oyster leases? Yeah, the uh, the volume of water come down with a lot of debris. So, yeah, we find quite often, and I guess it's uh, a bit of a reflection of uh, the, dr- the drier season this year and people preparing for bushfires, but um, a lot of the debris that we find washes down into the catchments are, are that of sort of cut trees and possibly burn poles have been set ready to burn. So we, we've received a lot of debris in our leases, which is, yeah, quite damaging to the to the lines and posts and baskets that we have out there. Um, so pretty well, uh, our lease, one of our leases there is uh, currently full of logs, sticks and branches. So we spent uh, pretty well yesterday afternoon, all, all the afternoon. Uh, the morning we um, spent towing big logs out, um, still in the floodwaters while the water was flooding, um, trying to tow logs out of the leases while they were still floating in the high water. Um, and then we spent the afternoon in wetsuits just climbing over branches and grass and hay and trying to just break it all up and disperse it um, away from the infrastructure as much as we could. Have you had a chance to kind of assess the extent of the damage? Uh, a general assessment, basically. Yeah, we've gone around all our leases. Um, we've done uh, immediate damage control as far as towing out the major logs and uh, either trying to get them to the bank as much as we can or tie, tie them up to banks if we can. But with the flood water running so hard, some of them would have to just get light, uh, let go down the river system. Yeah, we've just focused in on the on the leases that have been hit the hardest now to try and save save what stock and infrastructure we have left. Talk to me about the damage to stock and infrastructure and what that means for your business. Yeah, sure. Um, we, we were actually still still uh, recovering from the floods we re- um, went through in 2022, believe it or not. It's been a long process. We're only a small company, um, a partnership, my partner and myself. And we've recently managed to um, uh, get a part-time employee on to help us just catch up with the work workload that's compounded over the last 12, 12 months um, due to the previous floods. Uh, so we were really sort of looking to be back on track and where we should have where we should have been if we hadn't received those other floods. And now we're sort of back to square one. Uh, we've probably got at least two weeks' work ahead of us just to clean up um, the immediate damage before we even start looking at stock reconciliations and and um, calculating our losses, I guess. Pamela Oyster farmer Roy Glessing speaking there with James Tuggle. It's a, certainly a tough time. Let's try and bring in some better news for you. The Sunrise Group has just won the Agribusiness Food and Beverages Award, which was announced at the Australian Export Awards at Parliament House. Worth over $1.6 billion now, it started more than 70 years ago when a group of Riverina rice growers pulled their resources to build a single rice mill back in the 50s. It now sells more than 1,500 products under 35 major brands and into 50 countries, employing more than 650 people in what is expected to be a pretty good year for rice growing. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Coming up on quarter to one, but as they say, it's five o'clock somewhere and Hunter Valley winemakers say there's plenty of good drops to come from the 2024 vintage. That's despite what's been a dry year. 
They saw too much rain in 2021 and 22, and that, of course, impacted grape growing and picking, while we all remember the fires a few years earlier, which caused smoke damage to many local vineyards. Chris Tyrrell says it's been a mostly dry winter and spring, but rain in recent weeks has come at just the right time. He told reporter Carly Cook the workforce is also looking strong ahead of vintage 2024. Hugely changed, yeah. So 2021, 2022 vintage were, were a disaster in terms of labour, in terms of we just couldn't find nearly enough people. And then this year, yeah, it was just a huge influx of, of internationals on top of the, the local people that we had sort of in our pool, people. And, yeah, this year, certainly from um, a vineyard point of view, labour wasn't an issue. I mean, um, almost too many people, which is a nice problem to have. And hopefully that happens again in a, in a couple of months' time when vintage yeah. starts again? Correct, yeah. We don't, we don't envisage that being an issue for, um, you know, we're already getting people turning up to our cellar door and ringing now, putting their names down, um, backpackers and whatnot. So we'll be in touch with them in early January and we can get into it. In terms of the tourism side and having people come to the vineyards, we know we're often hearing about the cost of living and people struggling. Have, have many um, businesses seen a drop um, in visitors coming out? Do you need to try and market in different ways to encourage people to keep visiting the vineyards given, I guess, the current economic climate? Yeah, certainly um, what we see, um, what we've seen is is a drop in visitation coming off the, the highs of particularly those COVID years, but of international, I'm sorry, of domestic tourism, which was which was like we'd never seen. But I think we've seen a little bit of a turn in the last couple of months, and certainly with those cost of living measures, uh, pressures, sorry, at the moment, people are simply just travelling less and spending less, right? But I think the one thing that we've got in our favour in the Hunter is as a region, this is one of the most well-known in the country, um, for our restaurants, accommodation and wineries. So when people are going to make that decision to go, they're coming here. And certainly um, speaking with people in other regions, the Hunter is doing doing better than most. And But even just talking to our team here at Tyrrells, from a Tyrrells perspective and anecdotally talking to, to other businesses around, um, it seems to be picking up a little bit, particularly in November. And the bookings look really strong in over the Christmas period and into December and January. So certainly something to get excited about. That's Chris Tyrrell, a Hunter Valley winemaker at 14 to 1. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, there are calls for more support for specialised healthcare in rural Australia for people suffering from Parkinson's disease. It's the second most common neurodegenerative disorder globally, and it's estimated there are 200,000 people with it in Australia. Former agricultural consultant Marsha Isfister came to Australia from the States 30 years ago to be with her husband, and her life changed dramatically again when she was later diagnosed with Parkinson's. Ondine Slacksmith has the story. Well, it's, it's different for everybody. I've learned that. Um, I got diagnosed in um, July 4th, 2020, which is the American Independence Day, which the irony is not lost on me, believe me. I lost my um, total independence, I think. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around what's happened to my life. And um, Parkinson's itself shows on people with tremors and uh, a lot of people get they freeze up and that's what I do Um, if I don't have my uh, levodopa medication I just slow up and I can't can't move I just can't move and like a tin man and um, it, it took one whole year to get the diagnosis for Parkinson's, and it's like that for a lot of people. So 
There's a lot of people waiting for a diagnosis right now, I'm sure. And uh, did you realize that there are 500 people just in this Dobo area alone that have Parkinson's disease? I had no idea. That's, that's massive. It is massive for this population and everything. It's a big area, but still, it's a, it's a big thing, too. And it seems like it's more prevalent all the time. And no one can, no one can say why. Marsha attributes the year-long wait in getting a diagnosis to the different ways Parkinson's shows in patients. It, it manifests itself in back aches. In, in, uh, I had a bit of a tremor in one leg. I had I, repetitive, um, like a repetitive injury thing on my wrist. You know, I'd start stirring a pot of something on the stove and I couldn't stop. And um, there's just little things like that. And you think, what in the heck's wrong with me? So I went through two neurologists uh, a couple GPs, and finally uh, a fellow up here at the Allied gave me my diagnosis, a GP, and he says, do this, do that, and he, he knew immediately that I had it. She says that support networks for patients are important. In her instance, she gets by with the support of her husband, George. I think it's really important to talk to somebody that you know so well. Mm-hmm. We've been together for 31 years, so I guess... Yes, we know pretty, each other pretty well now. But, um, yeah, he, he's my, my measure. She's also of the belief that more support is needed for communities dealing with Parkinson's in rural areas. This is a sentiment that Coral Moncrief of Tamora shares. Oh, definitely um, more support with Parkinson's nurses, I think, where, uh, like, there is a Parkinson's nurse in Wagga, but uh, she covers a very large area, so it's very hard for her to get around and see everybody and, you know, um, phone calls to her and sometimes you don't get a reply from her straight away if you have to leave a message, uh, which is, you know, something that would be good if you could have a little bit more support out in the country areas. Her husband, Farmer Gary, was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2014. We do have a son who... Um, works on the farm while well, he runs the farm and had run the farm for a few years before Gary was diagnosed. Uh, Gary's workload had slowed down a bit probably before he had, was diagnosed, but there were certain things on the farm that he still really enjoyed going out and trying to do. He, he um, loved uh, truck driving at harvest time, taking grain to the silos and that sort of thing, and he was able to he knew that for a few years, but he couldn't see the, the long days out that he used to see. Coral established a local support group shortly after Gary's diagnosis. And despite Gary losing his battle to Parkinson's two years ago, she still remains heavily involved in the group and regularly passes on her knowledge. She says it's her way of giving back to the rural community. Oh, it, it is just so wonderful. It is great value. It is really good because you are getting information from people who have actually experienced the same thing as you've experienced. Dr Shanna Cargill was a postdoctoral research fellow at Charles Sturt University with the Aging Well and Regional and Rural Australia Group. She says a 2019 Victoria study showed a higher prevalence of Parkinson's in a couple of areas. There was really no difference in terms of the reported percentage prevalence between urban and uh, rural areas. When they 
kind of drilled down to look at the agricultural determinants. They did find a small clustering where there were a couple of local government areas shared a border and they had higher percentage prevalence than the overall state average of Victoria. Dr Cargill says that another problem in rural areas is a lack of access to specialist care, but telehealth could provide a solution to that problem. She says two specialist neurologists from Westmead have collaborated with the Mid-North Coast Local Health District to get services to regional Australians. They're currently trialling um, a hybrid telehealth clinic, so basically linking those city services for people in the bush um, so that they can have that level of care you know, the same as, say, someone in the metropolitan regions. Dr Shannon Cargill ending that report there by our Western Plains reporter on Dean Slack-Smith. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Concerns over possible regional escalation as the Israeli military orders evacuations from some parts of southern Gaza. Spaghetti Junction frustration builds as a new Sydney interchange causes traffic chaos. And a league of their own. The AFLW wraps up another season. You'll hear about the talented young players working hard for their chance to play at the top level. Those stories are more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. But right now, though, you're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. Amelia Bernasconi filling in for Michael Condon today and for the next couple of weeks. And a text coming in, Brendan wants to rename it the Culinary Hour. He says, oysters, garlic and wine might need a name change. Uh, Tim, thanks for your text. Great to hear you've had 440 mils of rain at Candelo for this event, but much more needed. Uh, we know that severe drought's taking hold right around the state. And a hat's off from Greg in Ningen to all those veggie farmers. He said he's tried to grow a few himself with a bit of success, but it's so good being able to shop at your local grocer or supermarket with fresh, readily available veggies. Time to head to the markets. David Monk, is it Dubbo? Numbers are up by 6,000. Free yarding of 13,200 lambs. There was a mixed yarding with some very good heavyweight lambs yarded along with fair numbers of trade weights. There were also large numbers of exotic lambs along with good numbers of merino lambs and hoggets. Lightweight lambs to the processors were $6 dearer, with a 12 to 18 kilogram two scores selling from 36 to 68. The better finished trade weight lambs were firm to four dearer, while the planer types were five to eight cheaper. Trade weight old lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilograms sold from 84 to 140 to average 560 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were three to nine dearer, with the 24 to 30 kilogram lambs selling from 130 to 180. Lambs over 30 kilograms sold from 170 to 202 to average 580 cents a kilogram. Merino lambs were two dollars dearer with trade weights selling from 69 to 98. Lambs to the restockers were firm with the young crossbreeds, selling from $9 to $48. Hoggets were $10 cheaper, selling to $93. We have the balance of the lambs and 6,500 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Wagga cattle, and Dax. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 5,800 at Wagga. The highlight of the sale has been a 50-cent leap in prices for heavy export steers, with Queensland feedlot buyers and processors going head-to-head with feedlots and other export processes. Heavy steers and bullocks made from 250 to 305, a remarkable increase from the previous sale. Cows also climbed 17 to 20 cents, with heavy cows making from 222 to 248, while leaner grades have topped at 240 cents. Feedlots gave a masterclass to trade buyers, outpacing them at almost every turn. This resulted in a price lift of 30 cents for steers and heifers. Steers under 500 kilos sold from 278 to 3 
3.21 to feed, while restockers were also in the game, pushing prices 30 to 40 cents higher. The lightweight steers sold from $3 to 3.46. Also, the feeder heifers, medium weight, made from 2.30 to 2.83. They had a leap of 30 cents and trade cattle. The few that are selling to the trade are making from 2.30 to 2.65. With a sale still in progress, Leanne Dax for MLA. Forbes cattle, Krista Ridley. Numbers more than doubled this sale with agents yarding 2,052 head. Quality continues to be mixed with some good lines of well-bred cattle offered, along with the secondary and crossbred types. There was extra buyers present competing in a dearer market. Yearling steers jumped 30 to 40 cents a kilo, with processors paying from 240 to 328. The unfinished types to feed received from 240 to 339. The heifer portion was 20 cents better to sell from 214 to 285 for better types to processors. Those to feed ranging from 229 to 309. Heavy steers and bullocks also jumped 30 cents, receiving from 225 to 302. Grown heifers sold from 210 to 245 cents, and a good yarding of cows saw prices lift 8 cents, with heavy two score from 172 to 215, three and four score from 207 to 231. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. James Armitage at Tamworth. Good afternoon. Numbers increased sharply to 1,955 head with just one sale left for the year. A good supply of medium and heavyweight yearlings cows and ground cattle in reduced supply. A full field of buyers with the return of a processor firmed Adira trends through the yearling steers. Restockers paying to 383 cents a kilo for lightweights. Medium weights sold from 310 to 344 cents up to 20 cents dearer. Similar trends to heavyweights 270 to 332. The extra competition saw heavy trade post strong gains 268 to 300 cents. Lightweight yearling heifers to restockers reached 316 cents to be slight, significantly dearer. Firm to a shade cheaper than medium weights. 260 to 292. Heavyweights were dearer, selling to 280 cents. Trade 283 to 290. Good afternoon. The market opened strongly at Corowa with a $20 lift across all categories. Agents penned just 11,000 sheep and lambs and the quality was fair to good. Strong competition drove some buyers out with one northern processor dominating most of the market. Heavy trade lambs sold from 126 to 168. Heavy lambs, 148 to 168. Light lambs, the processor, sold from 70 to $89. Sean, heavy trade weight lambs, sold from 129 to 167. Heavy hoggets, crossbred, sold from 72 to $100. And merinos from 58 to 80. Heavy crossbred ewes, 58 to $98. Merinos, 54 to 85. Merino weathers, sold up to $96. That was Carolyn Ronald at Corowa and Jenny Kelly's at Bendigo. Dear a land market as more processes were active, including one of the major supermarkets, which Bendigo hasn't seen for some weeks. Prices on average lifted another 5 to $10 a head, but there was spikes of $15 or more in places for lambs. This put the cost of an average run of trade and heavy lambs in the realm of 540 to 580 cents a kilo carcass weight, with the odd pen touching on 6 bucks a kilo. The big improvers were trade lambs, the 22 to 24 kilo suckers at 120 to 145 dollars to average 130, and the 24 to 26 kilos, 136 to 151 to average 141 dollars. And the other category to really push up was store and MK style light processing lambs, with a lot of sales from 60 to 90 dollars today. And there was little store lambs costing over 500 cents. Again, not a lot of weight in the yarding and a limited run of heavy export lambs over 30 kilos carcass weight 
made from 160 to a top of 185 dollars. That's our look at the markets this Monday. Thanks so much for your company on the Country Hour today. Let's do it again tomorrow, hey? Right now, the time for the latest local news, midday.